Barefooting with Sierra uses Buzzsprout. Just start with the equipment you already have and a quiet space. Add Buzzsprout and your podcast is ready to go. You'll get a great looking podcast website, audio players that you can drop into other websites, detailed analytics to show how people are listening, tools to promote your episodes, and more. Podcasting isn't hard when you have the right partners. Following the link in the show notes lets Buzzsprout know that I sent you, gets you a $20 Amazon gift card if you sign up for a paid plan, and helps support the show. The team at Buzzsprout is passionate about helping you succeed. Join over 100,000 podcasters already using Buzzsprout and get your message out to the world. Hello and welcome to episode 62 of Barefooting with Sierra. This podcast is recorded on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional and ancestral land of the Cree, Dene, Blackfoot, Ojibwe, Dakota Sioux, and others for time immemorial. I also would like to acknowledge that this land is home to the Métis Nation of Alberta and that I'm a settler on this land. My name is Sierra Larson, better known as Barefoot Sierra. I'm a novelist, comic creator, and independent journalist. I use they-them pronouns, and I have been living without shoes since 2010. I created this podcast to keep my audiences in touch with all of my projects, to talk about things I care about, and to interact with the awesome people in my various professional networks. Apologies for how long it's been since my last episode. I've been working with my therapist on healing from PTSD, and it's been very intense the last few weeks. Plus, I'm about to get married, and finalizing all the details has taken up a lot more time than I thought it would. Just about everything that could go wrong has gone wrong. The wedding is just five days away now, so hopefully things will normalize for me and I can get back to my regular weekly posting schedule. Thanks for sticking with me. I break this podcast up into four parts. Novels, comics, journalism, and barefooting, each representing a different aspect of my professional life. In this episode, I interview author Carly Heath. Let's get started. First up, novels. My novel, Red 72 Revelation, is available for Kindle pre-order. This finale to my Red 72 series is set four years after the Second Red War that took place in the previous book, Red 72 Exodus. Now struggling with PTSD from her time as a soldier in the war, journalist Candace Carroll demands answers to her questions about the biochemical weapon Red 72, questions that others are afraid to ask. These questions take her to the Philippines, where the first Red War began, and put her in danger once again. Red 72 Revelation comes out June 21st in paperback and ebook. My New Year's resolution this year was to read one book from the Texas Banned Books list each week. This week I read Things That Make White People Uncomfortable by Michael Bennett. It's a biography slash memoir by retired NFL player that touches on the inherent racism that exists in professional sports and society as a whole. There were definitely some uncomfortable things in there. But I think it's an important read and belongs in school libraries or kids of all races can access it and learn from it. And now for my interview with author Carly Heath. Hi, Carly. Thanks so much for joining me on the show. Please tell the listeners a little about yourself, where you're from and what you do. Hi, I'm Carly Heath, and I'm the author of The Reckless Kind, uh, coming to you from Los Angeles. Uh, the Reckless Kind is a young adult novel uh, set in uh, 1904 Scandinavia, and it's about three queer misfit teens who defy the expectations of their rural Scandinavian village in every possible way. <laughs> that speaks to me so much, like as a <laughs> queer person of Scandinavian heritage like I just love that so much (laughs) so oh yeah that Larson that Larson (laughs) I didn't even catch that but awesome are you Swedish Danish 
Oh, okay. Awesome. Yeah. This book is like heavily inspired by Norway. I've been obsessed with Norway since I was like in middle school, pretty much. And uh, it like the starting point for the book kind of happened when I read Christian Lavern's Daughter, which uh, I read that in like after college. And uh, that's the uh, historical Norwegian no- romance novel by uh, Sigrid Unset. And that was the novel that uh, earned her the Nobel Prize in Literature. And so uh, I I love everything about that book. I wasn't a big fan of how it's kind of not feminist. Yeah. And so I kind of, in this book, I wanted to take the cool things about Norway and that book and that setting and that those characters and that the richness of the writing and the characters. And that was kind of like my like inspiration, but with a message that was a little bit more feminist. I love that. That's incorporating feminism into, into your work. Can you talk a bit about why that's so important in literature? Yeah, well, especially I write for teens, and this book is definitely geared towards teens. And I think something that's really important, uh, especially now when we're in a time that really puts so much pressure on people to conform to capitalism and uh, conform to a certain way of living, right? Every You're like, you're expected to you know, obey your parents, obey your teachers. And there isn't enough, I feel, motivation and inspiration for teens to listen to your heart, listen to your feelings, and do live according to your what feels right for you, not what you're told to do. Things like defiance, things like rebellion, uh, and things like identifying what parts of society are unfair and need to be changed are values that I think we need, I would love to just see more of in media that's meant for kids and teens. Uh, It's something that I'm kind of thinking of. There's a YouTuber who I really like. Um, I remember one time she was talking about how growing up, her mother always encouraged her to listen to her feelings. And whenever her mom was like making a decision, she would like turn to her daughter and say, how do you feel about this? And that's something that really struck me because I growing up, anytime I had feelings, it was kind of punished. It was like, like, oh, if you're feeling, you know, I was punished for being too shy and I was scolded for being too shy. And so I think it's just really, really important to affirm people's feelings and to, uh, you know, understand that your feelings and your instincts are a really important part of your decision making process. They guide you towards people who are right for you and people who, and they guide you away from people who are not right for you. And so if someone is ma- making you feel like a way, a certain way, a certain not good way, it's important to listen to your feelings and stay away from that person. Whereas if someone's making you feel really good and after, you know, interacting with them, you, you feel really good, then that's a person that you should go towards. And if, if you're scolding a child for feeling uncertain about someone and feeling shy about some, someone, that's not a good value. That's not, that's not a good, you know, way of raising someone. Um, so that's a, a kind of a theme and idea that I put in the book a lot. Uh, the importance of connecting with people who make you feel good and staying away from people who make you feel uh, 
strange, even though you can't quite articulate why that person is making you feel uncomfortable. I love that. And that's so important. Definitely wasn't something that I had growing up, like (laughs) got in some situations that weren't so great, but Mm -hmm. you live and you learn, but kids haven't lived and learned yet. If you can get exposed to that through literature, through television, books, whatever you're consuming in media, that -hmm. can be a great way to learn that lesson. I love that. Um, I'm noticing you've got lots of uh, horse pictures on the wall behind you. Are you an equestrian? And is that feature in the book at all? Yes, I am big time horse person. I've had horses ever since I was a little kid. And I love horses and horse training. Um, I have a rescue horse now um, that I rescued about eight years ago. And uh, she's like my soulmate and the love of my life. Um, I wrote the book actually when I was training horses full time and uh, dealing with a lot of injuries that sometimes happen when uh, people are involved with horses, especially scared and traumatized horses. And that was also an inspiration in the book. Uh, I, I, I was going through a time where people were kind of telling me, your horse is crazy. Maybe you should get a more uh, gentle, well-trained horse that doesn't have so many issues. And that really inspired the Fuglestads, which is the main family in the book. They take in the horses that no one else wants, and they suffer in many ways because of it. They get injured. People say that they're cursed with perpetual bad luck um, because everyone in the family is constantly uh, having really bad situations and uh, bad luck uh, happen to them. Even though the Fuglestads is is the main central family, uh, they are kind of being viewed, the main point of view characters are Asta and Erland, who are two misfit teens who uh, idolize the Fuglestads in many ways, because the Fuglestads are living life according to their values and who are not conforming to the way everyone else is doing things. And uh, yes, they get injured. Yes, they have misfortunes happening, but they are a very compassionate family. And the and that was kind of something to play with. Like, why, why do bad things happen when you really have the best intentions? Well, it just happens. And maybe that's just what you're going to do. You're just going to live your life. And, and that's what happens. (laughs) Are you a horse person too? Not super into horses, but like I've, there's a YouTube video out there of me riding barefoot in a rodeo. Like, Oh, I love it. I have done horses like my son's taken riding lessons. So <laughs> like um, lived in the country a bit. My grandparents still live on a farm. So I've been around horses enough to not get stepped on preferably. Awesome. Yes, I have. Ri- I've ridden horses barefoot as well. And I'm also really into bareback and bridleless riding. So I ride my horse without a bridle, without any um, restraining equipment and that shows your connection and it shows that you know she's not doing things because I'm forcing her to do them we're doing things together because we are a partnership for sure yeah it takes (laughs) I think a lot more of a connection with the horse to be able to ride them without all the tack and the saddle and the reins and all of that because you're not yanking them and forcing them to go a certain way and 
holding on to them with this strapped on seat you're just it's just you and that horse and they trust you and you trust them and it's like a partnership rather than forcing your will on them I love that yeah yeah and they're doing it because they're having fun. Kind of like the uh, dogs in the agility classes. I love I love watching those because the dogs are like so excited. They're like going over the fences and <laughs> and but they don't have leashes. They aren't, you know, being pulled along. They're doing it because they love doing it. It's, it's yeah, that's kind of the relationship I want to have with my horse. Well, I think that that almost ties back in with those teenagers in your book is that they want to do things because they want to do them rather than being forced by parents. And that that really does seem to be the central conflict of almost every argument that a teenager has with their parents is what they want to do versus what people are kind of wanting to force them to do. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times that also comes into a lot of queer identity issues. Do you have struggles like that with the queer characters in your book or how does that yeah well uh the the main character Asta she's uh she has Wardenberg syndrome so her face is atypical and um, she has facial differences and she also like me she's hard of hearing and so that's considered like a fault like a feminine imperfection and you know where women are in the society like valued for their appearance, for their receptive qualities. Um, she's also coming as she's going through the book discovering that she's asexual. And uh, so in many ways, she doesn't conform to what uh, is expected of a woman. She is, uh, she because she doesn't conform to the conventional standards of beauty and she's not receptive in that she, she can't, she's not a good listener, you know, <laughs> she's, um, and she's not, not sexually receptive, you know, which is what the patriarchy wants of women. And so, um, she has to deprogram herself from these expectations. You know, she's told she should be grateful that this young man wants to marry her, but she's feeling a certain way about that. She's feeling like he's saying, like, aren't you, aren't you grateful that I don't, that I overlook your appearance and I overlook your, uh, your deafness. And she's set, she's like internally thinking this doesn't feel right, but she is not able to articulate why it doesn't feel right, which is something that I think a lot of women and people who are queer also like go through when they're kids is like, this is making me feel a certain way but I can't quite articulate because I don't quite have the language for why uh, these expectations are not uh, jiving with me. And a situation that I had uh, when I was in high school uh, was I was in a psychology class in high school. It was like an AP psychology class. And I remember the teacher uh, going through this human development uh, session. And she was saying, uh, this is, this is the process of human social development. When kids are uh, in, in like pre-elementary school, they all play together. And then in elementary school, they group up into female groups and male groups. And then in high school, they start to, the two groups start to intermingle. And then after uh, they graduate, uh, the groups start to pair up into male and female couples. And then the social expectations are that they raise 
children together. And she, well, she wasn't uh, phrasing it as social expectation. She was phrasing it as this is just the way humans develop. And this is the natural course of things. And I didn't have the language at the time to explain why that felt extremely uncomfortable for me. Um, I was, but I, but I think I instinctively knew that society is what groups people by parent gender. It's not a natural biological occurrence. And also the idea that we're just going to naturally progress into male and female couples that then our goal in life is to raise children together. Um, that definitely made me feel extremely uncomfortable. And I'm like, if that's the way that humans are, then maybe I'm not a human because I have no desire to have, uh, you know, a baby and like get married and like raise children and have that be like the purpose of my life. But this sort of information is presented as this is this is science. This is human development. This is the way things are. And so back, I, I've been really interested in things like eugenics and things like backwards science of the 1900s and the, the eight, the like 1800s too, um, where people are saying like, this is what's normal. And then thinking about, well, I know there's tons of people who don't conform to what the general uh, patriarchal capitalist society is saying is normal. So what's their experience like? And uh, so I have Asta, who is the uh, female character who is not living up to the expectations of the patriarchal capitalist society. And then I have the other point of view character is Erland, who is deeply in love with Gunnar, who is Asta's friend. And uh, he is un he is acknowledging that he is not heterosexual at all. Of course, he doesn't have the language to describe that. Um, so that's really fun to uh, explore. Um, but a lot of that developing these characters came out of some research I did in, in 19th century text. Like there was a lot of queer stuff that you can find in the 19th century. It's the idea that that didn't exist is not um, it, it, it's just completely false uh, because there was an early uh, gay rights activist named Edward Hartenbender who was born in 1844 and he wrote pamphlets about things like not only does same-sex attraction exist, but it's good for society and it makes society better. And uh, there was an early gay romance novel with a happy ending written in the early 1900s. Um, so, so the idea that queer people were either like super oppressed and they lived miserable lives of self-denial or that they didn't exist at all. Those are complete myths. For sure. For sure. Like there's, I can't remember what his first name was, but there was a drag queen in the 1800s in Utah and <laughs> his, his last name's young. He was Brigham Young's son. Oh, I love and, it. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> like gay drag queen, Brigham Young's son. There's a beer named after him. I can't remember what his first name was, but nice. it's one of Brigham Young's sons. Dude had like 47 wives. So we had a lot of them, but <laughs> I mean, something that's also really fun to look up because um, Google Books is great. Google Books is where I do lots of my research because you can search by time period. Um, 
is the phrase female husbands. And what these people are is people who are assigned female at birth and who married women and who dressed uh, as, I guess you could say dressed as men, but I would say maybe in many cases they were men, Um, but later were discovered that their assigned gender did not conform to to what society's expectation of that gender was. And uh, that is really interesting because there's a lot of books written about female husbands and um, how, you know, and that's, that's a whole can of worms there. But yeah, there, uh, there is a, you know, and also the whole idea that, uh, queerness was not accepted is really a a result of colonialism. Um, And it's a Western colonialist point of view, because prior to colonialism, there were loads of different gender diversity and different relationship diversity. And um, there was a lot of uh, leeway in understanding the human experience but just with the rise of Christianity and the rise of colonialism spreading a certain ideological ideology over the globe. Hello. I can't talk today. Um, those different gender expressions were wiped out. And uh, it's sad because a lot of knowledge was destroyed during the colonial period. Well, and also there was the Nazi book burning of queer literature, which yeah. breaks there- my heart. Yeah, in Berlin, there was a whole, like, queer uh, society um, that was thriving. There was, you know, um, and wasn't there also, like, you could, you could get, like, a little card that said, <laughs> that said, like, this person is allowed to dress like a man, <laughs> you know? Um, I'll have to, do, I, I remember something about like in Berlin uh, in the early 1900s, there was something about like, you could carry a card that like gave you permission to dress as the opposite gender. I'm not sure, but the, <laughs> I haven't heard anything confirming or denying that. That's, yeah. that's new information to me, but I'll maybe. Have to look that up. Yeah. 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 It seems like a lot of the things in in your books are things that personally resonate with you. I know my writing is kind of like therapy. I I tend to work out issues that I'm going through. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's even almost like getting in touch with a higher power. Have you mm-hmm. experienced anything like that for writing? What is your writing experience like? Yeah, definitely. I feel like uh, I like I don't know if you're into astrology at all, um, but. Okay. So yeah, I'm, oh, I'm really into astrology. So it's like a language for helping me to understand myself. And so I have Neptune in my third house. Neptune's all about um, connecting with the unconscious. The third house is all about writing and how your brain works and how you communicate. And so I feel like a big part of my writing is something that I don't know why I'm doing a certain thing with my writing that my writing is doing. And then later I figure out what I had done. <laughs> like, like I'll put on the, like I'm, I become obsessed with certain the- themes, certain scenes, certain imagery, um, certain dialogue between characters. And I write it down and I just kind of like flow it out 
it's it's coming from a place that maybe in some cases is not necessarily mine. It's it's probably in, in a way it feels sometimes like it's being channeled through me. And then after I've gotten it written out, then I figure out intellectually what I was doing. And then I ha- have it make sense um, in the restructuring and the uh, revising process. So yeah, it, it, for me, writing does feel like a spiritual experience. It feels like uh, it's, it's me figuring something out in my subconscious, certainly, because I was writing things that I hadn't figured out for myself yet. And then in the revising process, I'm like, oh, I just learned something about myself, <laughs> you know, that sort of thing. Have you had that experience before where you're like, I'm writing something. I don't know what I'm writing. I don't know why I'm obsessed with this thing. But then after you write it, you're like, okay, I get what I was trying to do. Yeah. And it it almost feels like the writing is coming to me like as inspiration, almost otherworldly or Mm -hmm. like a, I don't want to say like a spirit speaking to me because that sounds (laughs) like ghost writing, but it, it does feel external. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know, maybe it's like my characters create minds of their own or something. I don't know. But it, mm-hmm. yeah, it's, it's like, it doesn't come from me. Like, obviously it is me writing the book, but mm-hmm. it's, yeah, it's, it's different. It's almost a religious experience because it's, it's creating something entirely new. Mm-hmm. Like, like how sometimes when people give birth, they say that it was the most spiritual, sacred experience of their life. Writing a book is like making a baby it's yeah like you've you've created these characters like you've given birth to them and Mm -hmm. it feels very much the same to me yeah it's like you you get these images in your head and it's not like you're sitting down and you're like I'm going to create this story it's like you're going through your day and you're these images start hitting your head and these characters start talking and these scenes start playing out in your head. And then you're like, okay, wow. So this is coming to me fully formed. Um, I'm gonna, gonna have to put that on paper. And then, yeah, sometimes it doesn't make sense <laughs> yet. You're like, okay, what's going on here? But then, yeah, in the revision process, it's like you're, you're a sculptor and you're like, okay, let's make sense of this thing that came to me. For sure. And sometimes it's like, well, now, now that I've sculpted this face, it doesn't have a nose, so I've I've got to yeah. add that. <laughs> or yeah, I've got, got to add the connecting eye. pieces. <laughs> or it's like there's a hand over here, there's a foot over here, and there's like a head here, and it's like okay, I got to put some arms on here to make yeah. it make sense. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah, that's definitely. that's editing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's the painful part. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. What advice do you have for people who are maybe in the process of writing their first book or fifteenth book for writing and making their writing better? I think the big thing is connect with people who can read your work uh, objectively and critically, and give you get as much feedback from as many different people as possible, uh, because. You might write something, and I, I know the first draft of this book um, made no sense to most people who read it. <laughs> um, I was like, I was so proud of it. I was like, 
I wrote 80,000 words. It's like a complete book. And then I started just sending it out to people who wanted to read it. And they're like, I'm confused. I don't know what's going on. Um, I don't know why this character is doing this thing. And there is a temptation for some any creative person, whenever you get feedback, uh, to think, oh, that person is dumb. That person doesn't get what I'm trying to do. Oh, you know, and that sort of thing. But really take that criticism and take it to heart and think, okay, my goal is to make my work connect with as many people as possible, especially when you go out and you query to agents and the agents send it out to publishers. It's important that uh, as many people as possible connect with it so that it, it can actually be published and get out there. So if you're getting feedback from people who are saying, I don't understand this, I'm not engaged, I, this part is boring, why is this scene here? Um, instead of thinking like, well, you just don't understand. Um, you make them understand by rewriting it in a way that's going to engage your audience. And that's hard. And it's hard to, to be like, okay, well, this thing in my head makes sense to me. Why isn't it making sense to other people? And that's the process of just like adding what you need to add, taking away what you need to take away until it finally does make sense for people. But it's totally, totally part of the, the creative process to have uh, your initial drafts not make any sense and to have people uh, be confused and then the revision process. You're not a bad writer if people are not getting what you're trying to do right away. Uh, it's just you have to revise and that's fine. Everybody's first draft is garbage. I don't even let people read my first draft. They get yeah. to my second draft. And even yeah. then it's still pretty, uh, what the heck is going on here? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I've been working on another thing for like so long and I've had like, I feel like I've had like 60 people read it. And um, yeah, just a few months ago, it was still the stage where people were like, what, what is happening here? <laughs> I'm confused. <laughs> and what's this character feeling? What does he want? I don't understand, you know? So so yeah, then you're like, okay, thank you for telling me that this makes no sense to you. Let me figure out how to explain this in a way that's going to make sense to people. <laughs> exactly. And those, those readers, um, they, they help you not have accidental, just complete nonsense in your yes. book. That you, yeah. You with your golden starry eyes of this is my book and it's perfect or mm -hmm. your crippling self-doubt of, oh my gosh, I've just written the worst book ever. Yeah. It's like a constant going between those things. It's like, oh my God, this is so good. This is so perfect. And then like, oh God, you know, I got my first round of feedback from people and I'm like, oh gosh, I guess I don't know what I'm doing. You know? Yeah. It's, it's one or the other. It's like, worst yeah. book ever. Worst book ever. <laughs> I know. That's, but that's totally normal. And also I, um, I have a YouTube channel where I interview authors and from, what I've seen on my interviews, it takes about 10 years to go, to go from, I want to write a book, I'm going to get started on my book, to getting the book actually published. So anyone who's just starting out, like if you're, if you're wondering, well, how long is this going to take? Just plan on it taking 10 years. And yeah, you're going to be revising that book for 10 years. And that's, I know that sounds like a lot, but wow, the time flew. Let me tell you. Um, I, like I wrote mine in 2014 was when I finished my first draft, uh, the nonsense draft, the draft that 
literally people read and were like, what? I don't understand. And then uh, I did heavy revising 2015. I sent out a few queries. I got uh, feedback from an agent who was really good. He gave me, gave me really, really good feedback. 2016, I prepared for pitch wars, was swapping my manuscript with tons of people. Um, didn't get into pitch wars, didn't get into author mentor match. Uh, 2017, I got my first agent, uh, went on, got lots of feedback from that agent, went on sub to editors, did not get any book deals and, or any offers. That agent left the business. Uh, 2018, I got a new agent, uh, did revisions. And in 2019, I got my offer from my publisher. And then from 2019 to 2021, when the book came out, uh, all, all the revising, you know, <laughs> um, and wow, the publisher, like they have lots of different people read the book and give you feedback on it. And so that's really great. Uh, you get lots of different perspectives and you, you realize and reading it like for the 275th time, you're like, yeah, this part is boring. <laughs> now that I've read it so many times, I'm <laughs> let's just cut it out. <laughs> you know, that sort of thing happens. Absolutely. Absolutely. I was um, speaking with Tony Russo in a, in a previous episode. He's a like journalistic author. He does. Mm -hmm. uh, he covered the Sherry Shriner cult and he's like, yeah, oh, wow, time I'd gone through like my 12th round of edits of my book. I was just ready to throw in the fire. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And you, and then at the end of it, they give you past pages, which is your book, like all laid out um, in like the formatting that it's going to be published in. And you have to read through it again to make sure if they made any mistakes. And at that point I was like, oh my God, I want to be done. You know, I, I'm reading these words and they're not making sense to me. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. I have a book words. coming out next year and I'm, I'm oh. waiting for my, my author proofs to get here. And then it, yeah, I have to do that. Oh, cool. What's your book? Uh, so it's called Red 72 Revelation. It's the fourth in my Red 72 series, which is awesome. an action series about biochemical terrorist attacks. Awesome. I will check it out. Yeah. Yeah. I self-published, but even with self-publishing, it took yeah. me six years to get my first book out there because all the rounds of editing. Yes. Good for you. Yeah. It's so many rounds of editing. So just to those of you who are out there, just expect it to take a long time. Expect to read your thing at least 480 times. And that's part of it. It makes it really good though, when it gets all done though. Yes, absolutely. Well, it's been so great, so great chatting with you, Carly. Where can people find you? Uh, thank you, Sierra. So I am, my website is carlyheathauthor.com. Uh, my book, oh, The Reckless Kind, is available everywhere books are sold. Uh, so you can get it at your local bookstore, at your library, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Target.com, uh, Walmart.com. Definitely support your local independent bookstore, though, and order from them. That's always the best. Also, the audiobook for The Reckless Kind, I think, is fantastic. So definitely get the audiobook if you are a person who uh, listens to audiobooks because the performers, Michael Crouch and Lisa Knight Keating, are amazing. Um, Laura Knight Keating amazing sorry I didn't mean to say Lisa um I'm active on Twitter at Carly L Heath and I'm on Instagram at Carly Lynn Heath L-Y-N 
Heath. And then I'm on TikTok as well at Carly Lynn Heath. Um, and uh, yeah, connect with me. Uh, definitely check out the book at your local, wherever you get books. And um, let me know what you think. <laughs> feel free to, uh, yeah, feel free to drop into my DMs anytime. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, thanks again. All righty. Thank you so much for having me, Sierra. Now on to comics. This week's comic, Healthy Coping Skills, was somewhat of a request by my therapist. You can see it on my comics Instagram, at World of Possums, or my comics Facebook, Possum Pete Comics. In comics news, UK comics publisher Marcosia announced a spring 2022 release for the graphic novel Johnny Recruit, written by 14-year-old Canadian Theo B. and illustrated by Canadian artist Tom Muzzle. Theo was inspired to write Johnny Recruit after visiting a Royal Air Force memorial, gave him the idea to write a story about his uncle Bert, who was a pilot in World War II. I'm super excited about Johnny Recruit. My kid is really into both graphic novels and stories about fighting Nazis lately, which, with current events, I wonder why. Anyway, it seems like it's going to be an awesome book. Speaking of graphic novels and Nazis... A Tennessee school board banned the graphic novel Mouse about the Nazi invasion of Poland. Ryan Higgins, who owns a comic book store in Sunnyvale, California, is not a fan of banning books. When he heard about this decision, he tweeted that he would send a free copy of Mouse to up to 100 families living in the Tennessee school district. He's also been sending graphic novels of the Texas banned books to kids in Texas. This man is a true hero. Also, Seriously ironic to ban a book about people who literally burn books. Kind of on the wrong side of history, folks. All right, next up is journalism. February is Black History Month. This episode's Black History Spotlight is Vanetta Flowers, the first black athlete from any country to win a gold medal at the Winter Olympics. Flowers attended the University of Alabama, where she competed as a sprinter and long jumper before making the transition to bobsled. Vanetta Flowers and Jill Bakken won the gold in the two-woman bobsled event at the 2002 Salt Lake City Olympics. After the 2002 Olympics, Flowers took a year off, had twins, and came back in 2003. She and driver Jean Pram came in third place at the 2004 World Championships and sixth overall place at the 2006 Turin Winter Olympics. Flowers retired after the 2006 Olympics. She was inducted into the Alabama Sports Hall of Fame in 2010. In current events, Hawaiian macadamia nut farm and processing plant Mauna Loa installed a 2,916 solar panel solar farm at their nut farm, which in combination with existing renewable energy sources on the premises will fully power the farm and processing plant. This is now the largest project running completely on renewable energy in Hawaii. Mauna Loa is fully committed to sustainability in their production. The macadamia nuts are watered with rainwater. The company runs zero waste from the nuts, the shells get burned as part of their renewable energy, and the husks get composted and used as fertilizer. They also have an on-site wastewater program. The installation of the solar panels has made the facility 100% self-sustainable. This is the future. It's so exciting and honestly a relief to see companies taking the initiative to be sustainable and responsible like this. I hope many more companies will follow their example. In examples not to follow, Donald Trump's inaugural committee trial is scheduled to begin September 26th. 
the Office of the Attorney General filed suit against the Presidential Inaugural Committee, alleging that the committee misused funds to overpay Trump Hotel for event space, throw a private party for the Trump children, and pay private debts owed by Trump's businesses. The lawsuit claims the inaugural committee booked hotel rooms for days they wouldn't use them, and used the Trump Hotel even though other hotels offered to host the events for free. I'll be keeping my eye on that trial with interest. Last but not least, let's talk about barefooting. It has been icy and snowy and cold and just gross here, so I've been mostly wearing shoes. I know, shocking. Bear with me. The fiancé and I were visiting his brother last week, and as we were leaving, I slipped on their icy stairs. I hit my butt hard. I had a stair bruise across my rear end. We went back a few days later for another visit, this time sans shoes. Everyone laughed because they all know how clumsy I am in shoes. I have never fallen on ice or snow while barefoot. But hey, shoes are tools, and sometimes it's cold enough and you're going to be outside long enough that you need to wear them, so you risk the clumsiness as a trade-off to not get hypothermia. In barefoot news, anyone who follows me on social media or has been listening to this podcast from the beginning probably knows that I love to call Brigham Young University out on their nonsense. This extends somewhat to their satellite campuses in Idaho and Hawaii, but as I didn't attend those campuses, I tend to pay less attention to them. But this week, BYU-Hawaii's student newspaper put out an article about the pros and cons of social media that was just so ridiculous. The opening sentence. When Madison Richter, a junior from Ohio majoring in peacebuilding, took a three-month break from social media, she said it gave her the chance to take up film photography with a film camera her grandpa gave her. Like, those two things are not related. What does social media have to do with film photography? Also, what the heck does it even mean to major in peacebuilding? But I digress, we're here to talk about barefooting. When Madison came back to social media, she found that Instagram stories are the most interactive way for her to connect with people. One day, she posted a story asking, what are some little things that make you fall in love with life a little bit more? Her friends posted answers that included secondhand bookstores and being barefoot on the grass. Madison said, I had other friends reach out after I posted those responses and say it brightened their day as well, which was a really nice feeling. The whole article is just a giant ball of cheese. But yes to secondhand bookstores and being barefoot on the grass, making me fall in love with life just a little bit more. And hey, cheesy isn't necessarily a bad thing. When we picked our wedding date, February 22nd, 2022, we picked it because it's all twos and it's a Tuesday. Apparently, we weren't the only ones thinking this. As reported in the Providence Journal, the last Tuesday of this month is set to see wedding pandemonium. They interviewed one couple who was planning a barefoot beach wedding in Mexico. Quote, the more twos, the better, Karina Jablonski told them. She's holding her ceremony at 2 p.m., which we considered, but that would be a bit mean for the people who work day jobs and have kids in school and whatnot. Our ceremony is going to be at 5 p.m. Mountain Time on February 22nd, and we will be doing a Zoom live stream for anyone who would like to watch. I'll post the link to our wedding blog, which has all the details in the show notes. That's all for this episode. I'll be back next week with an interview with Dwarf Star Comics about their upcoming anthology comic book. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to sierrathebarefootgirl at gmail.com. Thank you to Legion X for my intro and outro music. You can find me on Twitter at sierrabarefoot and on TikTok at sierraisbarefoot. My Instagram is sierrathebarefoot. 
All of my books are available on Amazon and on my website, sierratherefootgirl.com. My Patreon is patreon.com slash possumpete. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening. Until next time, this has been Barefooting with Sierra.